Hi, everyone, and welcome back to On Location, a uh, most excellent new episode. This is Jared Cowan. Uh, we've been on a little bit of a hiatus. This is our first episode since December when we met up with director Jeremiah Chechik at the Griswold's house from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And you'll hear these planes throughout this episode. That's because the, the location that we're at today is right near the Van Nuys Airport here in the San Fernando Valley. So don't mind that. Uh, it's just a thing that, that goes on. And, you know, it's something that happens when, when filmmakers are working on location. This episode I wanted to do for some time, but haven't been able to get to it exactly when I wanted because uh, I've been working on developing some tours uh, of filming locations. I've been doing the San Fernando Valley film, film location, a Pasadena film locations. But yeah, I've been wanting to do this for, for a while, but because of the nature of the show, you know, we're not in a studio. I got to coordinate the location and then the schedules of uh, our busy guests. So today we are in the Japanese Garden in Woodley Park in Van Nuys, California, but we're not actually, it's weird, we're not actually, not actually focusing necessarily on the beauty of these gardens today, which you should visit if you're ever in LA or you live here and you haven't been. We're here to talk about the administrative building for the Donald C. Tillman Water Reclamation Plant. And you might wonder why we're essentially at a sewage treatment facility today. Uh, well, the glass and concrete building designed by futurist architect Anthony J. Lumsden, it opened in 1985, and it's been at the center of a number of films and television shows. Perhaps most notably, it was the exterior of Starfleet Academy and some of the latter Star Trek series. Uh, it was used in the first Austin Powers movie, Biodome, and it was used quite heavily as the lakeside mental institution in the Roger Corman-produced 1990 film called Brain Dead, which starred Bill Pullman and Bill Paxson. They actually use the exterior and the interior, but just after Brain Dead used the location, it was featured in what I would argue is one of the most radical sequels ever made. And, you know, how do you follow up a successful comedy about two time-traveling San Dimas teens and not repeat yourself? And I guess the answer is to kill them and send them to hell, which brings us to why we're here today. The Tillman Water Reclamation Plant was used as the exterior of Bill and Ted University in 1991's Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. My guest today is the film's production designer, who I would actually call an auteur of a production designer. I mean, normally you'd give that title to a director because you can see that person's stamp across their films. But I would say that you can recognize the work uh, of my guest from some of the films he's done, including Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. He's the Academy Award-nominated art director of Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. He designed films such as Tim Burton's Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Gene Wilder's The Woman in Red. He's done comedies like Strange Brew, Back to School, Summer School, She's Out of Control, uh, and sci-fi action films like Super Mario Brothers, Demolition man and soldier and i'd like to welcome my guest today david l snyder thanks for joining us today good morning now we've been corresponding for a few years just between email and phone doing interviews for different articles and but we just met for the first time last month at this drive-in screening of peewee's big adventure that i worked on that was just a couple of minutes from where we are right now did you did you have a good time out there at the drive-in I had a great time. I was uh, frankly shocked at the number of people that showed up. It was 250 cars full of at least one person. And uh, the screen setup was great. And uh, as an aside, the food was great. <laughs> and I hadn't seen the film except uh, on video in a long time. It was a lot of fun. And my daughter came with her kids. And there was age groups of like probably 80 years old to like seven years old. It was a cross, uh, a cross section of age and interest in films. 
Did you ever actually see it at a drive-in? No, no. Uh, the first time I saw it was at the premiere at uh, what was then Grauman's Chinese and now Man's Chinese, I think. And uh, I, uh, I hadn't seen it on the big screen since uh, I introduced the film at the Museum of Modern Art during the Tim Burton uh, exhibition. Was it sort of meta watching the drive-in scene at a drive-in? Well, I, when, I, when the drive-in sign comes up and you're already sitting in your car? It's like the drive-in in the drive-in. It's very bizarre. <laughs> it's like the, the stage play within the stage play. Right. <laughs> wasn't there, um, I mean, before we get into Bill and Ted, wasn't there something funny about the actual drive-in sign with the neon? Yes, yes. It was, it was almost a catastrophe. It was in Culver City, and uh, we hired a company, the, the low-bid company, neon company, to uh, rejuvenate the sign because some of the tubes had burned out. But what happened is they they failed to take a photograph or make a drawing of what the sign was like <laughs> and after they fixed all the tubes they came back and when they reassembled it they had no idea of where the tubes went and to me it was a catastrophe but no one else seemed to mind except me and my construction coordinator right. Bruce Gefeller yeah <laughs> So we're at the Japanese Garden today at this at the Tillman Water Reclamation Plant. Have you been here since you did Bill and Ted? I, I have not been here since Bill and Ted, and the closest I've been here is at the drive-in of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. You're here. It's the first time you've been here f for a while. Can you describe this place to people for, you know that, that maybe haven't been here? What's it, what, what is this building like and the gardens, and why is this building so attractive to filmmakers? It's kind of interesting because on on one side of it, architecturally, it's sort of a brutalist concrete building, and it's surrounded by all this natural beauty and rock formations and recycled clean water. And uh, there's like birds and other animals uh, in the vicinity here. So it's a natural spot. And the idea is because it's so far in the future, uh, back in uh, 1991, this is the best we could do because, uh, you know, there wasn't the Disney Center downtown. There wasn't a right. lot of modernist buildings around. And, and the idea that it was this brutalist concrete next to the garden seemed to be that the human race was in tune with nature. Does it look like anything's changed since you've been here? No, and, and what I'm amazed about is how, how beautiful the gardens were. I, I had forgotten how, how absolutely gorgeous and, and well-maintained the gardens are. I'm surprised. How did you get the job working on Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey? Innovative Artists, my agency, uh, sent me to a meeting with Scott Kruth and Stephen Herrick. And I had read the script and I, I thought it was great. And they said, we're going to go to England, and we're going to go to France, and it, it all sounded like a, a great trip. And then we talked about the budget, and I thought, this is a, a, a lot of movie for the design department budget. And I thought, there's an opportunity to do a, a great comedy, which at that time I was on a roll with comedies. And I thought about it, and I... This was, is this for the first one? Because you mentioned going to England and France. The, so the, you interviewed for the first, for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yes, that, that's how it began. I interviewed for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure with Scott Kroof and Stephen Eric. I read the script, and I had a great meeting, and we were all laughing. And it was one of the best meetings I've ever had. And it was the first time I'd met Scott. And so uh, what happened was that I molded over, I talked to my agent, and I decided, you know what, if there's not enough money to do this, I'm going to look bad. So I, I decided to take a pass, and they were disappointed, and I was as disappointed as they were. 
Was there something, do you think, in your, um, well, the comedies, but was there something else in your, your previous work, though, that maybe they saw in, in you that was good for a, a sort of sci-fi comedy? Well, I, I mean, I, I have to say that it, it all begins and ends with Blade Runner. <laughs> right. I mean, it's the double-edged sword. Uh, sometimes people will say, let's get that guy. And then when you're working on the film, sometimes people come and say, hey, man, I, I don't see any Blade Runner here. I, I don't understand. And I said, well, if you want to see Blade Runner, then I guess you better hire Ridley Scott as a director because he's <laughs> solely responsible for everything that I did because he was a sort of a, a, an executive production designer on the film. And it was his concept, and we basically realized this concept and then built everything, and then it was all built. He would come to the set and look through the lens, and everything would change every day for the better, right. I might add. So it was a, a very challenging thing, and people thought, well, if he can do that movie as the art director, because Larry Paul, being the production designer, was in charge of the overall look of the film, and I was in charge of the sets and the locations. It was, it was my job to do it on budget and on time. So what happened was, I think, Scott Kroof and Stephen Herrick, uh, I mean, before that, I guess you could say maybe Galactica 1980, uh, maybe uh, Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Maybe they thought, oh, this is the sci-fi guy. And then I had done a few comedies uh, that were pretty successful. So they thought, well, this is the right combination. And, and so uh, they... Uh, were disappointed as I was, and then sometime later, I don't know how many years later, they called me in again, and Scott Krupp called me and said, we really want you to do this, and now we have enough money. And I said, <laughs> you know what, I'm really flattered, and, and I love the first movie, and I'd be happy to do the second one. So I, I met Pete Hewitt, who was great. He had just come from England, and he did a, a, a short film that was uh, lovely and, 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 and terrific, and that's what got him the job. Uh, I can't remember the title, but it was great. And all of my crew who had worked with me in science fiction uh, were available because, you know, when you do a, a motion picture as a designer, it's like casting. And there's certain people who are better at some things than others. And it's like casting actors in a movie. You have to cast the art department, just like the camera department, the costume department. You get people who are really good at at specific things like science fiction. So Bill and Ted is a comedy, but it's certainly a science fiction comedy. Totally. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey has a very different tone than the first one. It's an interesting sequel, I think, in the way that Back to the Future 2 is an interesting sequel. How, how, do, you, how do you take that idea and, and, and run with it and not just do the same thing? I mean, the characters are dying, they're going to hell. Uh, it's not just a time travel thing so when you got the script or when you were working on it did you feel like it was something special it was something unique well i th i thought it was terrific i mean ed solomon being the author uh the co-author of the of the film uh i, I kind of had been familiar with his work and it's sort of like cheeky and sort of dark in one way yeah. and and i thought listen well here's the opportunities okay it's in the future and we know about the phone booth and I have to be careful that anything that I do in the film based on the first film is an exact uh, replica 
starting with the phone booth. There was lots to talk about the phone booth. Did you have to totally recreate it, or was it in like a store? Did, did they have a phone booth from the first ones somewhere? If, if they did, I probably declined to use it. Oh, okay, okay. I decided, you know, because anything that's been used in a film before, there's a possibility that it got whacked around and beat mm. up and all that, and there's a lot of action on that phone booth, and I wanted to make sure that it was sturdy and it was safe. So I decided to uh, start from scratch, and we probably made some modifications to it because we had a lot more money. I will say that. Budget-wise, we had plenty of money. Uh, I, I never had to ask for more money on that show because they did. A, Neil Maclis, who was the executive producer, did a great job of running the picture. And uh, the first thing I said in the meeting, I said, okay, well, I read the script, and I said, you know, I, there's, there's heaven and there's hell. Now... I've been to hell a few times, but I've never <laughs> been to heaven. So heaven is the one that's going to be a challenge for me. The Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure world takes place in and around San Dimas, California. <laughs> and I don't uh, know why, but it's pretty it's funny. It's San Dimas. It is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. um, the first movie, I think they shot most of the San Dimas stuff in Phoenix, actually, from my the research I've done. They were in Phoenix, and then, yes, they went to Europe to do some of the uh, medieval stuff. In the sequel, you actually was shot in and around Los Angeles. I mean, was that always the play from the beginning? How did you end up here in LA? Well, we, we stayed here because, well, first of all, it's California. So for starters, whether it's San Dimas or Los Angeles, you're in the same environment regionally. And uh, I think that the opportunities for their apartment, the police uh, department, all those locations that were found for me, I didn't find them. The way it works is the location manager goes out and looks for things that he thinks are right. And then before the director or the producers go, I go myself so I can do my picks and selects before dragging 20 people to look at it on, on a technical survey. This place, it was like no contest. This was perfect. Mostly everything we found. And a lot of the, a lot of the film was built on stage including a portion of the exterior of his uh, girlfriend's home. And uh, that was because of the stunt of them flying through the windows. Oh, the, the uh, like the stepmom, right? Yes, the ste yes. Yeah, Missy, right, right. Yeah, Missy's place. And so we were pretty much never told to stop building, stop designing. And uh, I had guys like uh, Simon Merton and Robbie Consing and... Uh, Sarah Knowles. I, I had a terrific art department, so I was able to delegate a lot of the work because it was a, it was a big movie to do. Big movie in the sense of the, the number of sets. It's contemporary. It's in the future. Uh, I brought on my costume designer, Marie France, who, who had done uh, Purple Rain. All the people that I brought in, you know, had to be approved by Pete Hewitt and by the producers. And everyone I brought in, there wasn't anyone who they said, no, we don't want that guy. It was an all-around thing uh, with uh, uh, Simon being uh, the guy who was good at... Uh, at uh, Tech Hardware, who I later brought on to Super Mario Brothers with me and, and Soldier and lots of other films. And so uh, it was daunting in a way, but because I had a great crew, if you're a production designer, you're really wise to give everyone their own little patch and say, okay, you can design all of this set and, and I will uh, accept what you do and I won't get in your face. I try to never be the supervisor of everything, you know, micromanagement doesn't work for me. And I think that's one of the reasons why my films all look different 
because it's all based on what's in the script. I don't have a style. Uh, my production design art direction style is whatever I read on the page, I try to turn those words into pictures without a style as opposed to MGM and Warner Brothers and RKO who all had a head of the art department and every studio had a style. So all the RKO, Fred and Ginger movies kind of look the same sure. and my films all look different. I'll, I would argue that some of the, the sci-fi stuff between Super Mario Brothers and Demolition Man and Soldier, what's funny is that I saw Soldier just last year. I didn't know actually you worked on it, but when I was watching it, some of the things, knowing some of your other work, I kind of thought, this kind of looks like David's work in a way. That sort of the, the tech hardware, the post-apocalyptic thing. And then I'm watching the credits and <laughs> it was your work. So I don't know. It's funny. Where does that, and some of that's in Bill and Ted too, I feel like, especially the hell, the hell stuff, the metal and the big bolts on things. I'm just wondering where that came from. Are you inspired by a certain type of architecture for those types of things? Well, I mean, yeah, I suppose so. It's like I, I, I can't see my movies the way anyone else does because if you're there behind the camera for 85 days or something, you see something different than what's on the screen. I, I see everything that happened. Well, do you remember in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey if there were any locations that were difficult to find? I don't think so. I mean, you know, like the apartment set, for example, was, you know, on location. But the, right, that the apartment in itself uh, was, West, West Hollywood. Yeah, but, but of course, everything else was on stage. Right. So it was all built because, you know, hole in the floor and the head and the waste oh, yeah, and right. all that stuff. Right. Yeah. But you used a lot of that apartment complex between the courtyard, oh, yeah. uh, the walk, the stairs, the, the garage under the apartment complex. And that building is quite striking, actually. I think it's from it's a mid-century building with the slanted roof. It's great, roof. yeah. It's, it's, mean, it's almost like a, 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 googie, a googie building. Yeah. And, and the funny thing was, uh, the nice thing about shooting like an, an L.A. Uh, uh, apartment as opposed to New York or uh, like a high school or intermediate school is it's all open plan because we don't have the snow and the cold weather. So therefore, cinematographically, you can get all these great wide shots. You're shooting in New York, you're stuck in corridors. Right. You're going up stairwells, right. you know, five-story walk-ups. And, and a lot of that has to be built on stage. On Bill and Ted, I, I can't remember anything that was unpleasant about it. And it was a really happy crew and the visual effects crew was uh, well staffed. And so uh, I can't think of anything, finding a location or anything else that was troubling. And you know, my, my, my only thing that I remember about it being something that I wasn't pleased with in the end is the whole station thing. And we'll talk station. about that later. So we're here at, at Tillman. Really, the exterior of it's only seen for 30 seconds or something at the very beginning of the movie. Why was it important to find a practical location for this type of, uh, for this, for that setting as opposed to trying to build something for it? Well, because of the massive scale, uh, the, like I said, the, the marriage of brutalist architecture and nature. Very hard to find that. What is brutalist? Brutalist means it's like generally formed concrete with the aggregate in it and steel like this. And it's brutalist because there's, it's the, the absence of detail like uh, Art Deco and, and, and like Rococo and all those things were all about the things that you put on top of the structure, the frosting on the cake. Mm. 
So with brutalist architecture, there's no frosting. I see. It, it's uh, the form is completely exposed, and and when it w was was first used in in Germany, the Germans were, were the beginning of it all. Uh, the Bauhaus uh, movement. There was a lot of objection to it, and it took a long time for it to come to America because the American architects, like Stanford White and all those people, everything w was about design and and decor, and and that went out of fashion. One of the reasons I think that Brutalist became popular with developers because it was cheap. You know, the lack of detail right. saves a lot of money. And I'm not a big fan of it. And it's just one of the things I like out of many things I like. There's, there's not many movements in architecture that I don't like. It's like music. I like all of it as long as it's good. <laughs> right. <laughs> Did you have to add anything to the location to make it become Bill and Ted University? Just the two items, the, the statue, which was sculpted uh, out of foam and then hard-coated. One person on the crew was brought in to, to just do the statue. Uh, that's all he did. And the one of, of actual uh, Bill, and the Ted. Bill and Ted statue. Yeah, it, it, was, it was really beautiful, and it actually looked like them as opposed yeah. to, you know, the Lucille Ball statue in Jamestown, <laughs> right, the notorious right. statue. And, and so uh, that, and, and mostly it was about the colorful costumes that Marie France designed with the boots, and I mean the color palette. And, and by the way, this is important. The color palette in the film was based on uh, an ultraviolet technique that had just come out where a, a company had taken some uh, 10K lamp fixtures. Uh, I, I'm not sure if they were arc lights or what they were, and they were able to somehow design and engineer and design uh, this ultraviolet system so that, for example, in, in the classroom scene, in the very beginning, when everyone uh, walks into the room, they open the barn doors of the, uh, the lighting fixtures, and all of a sudden, the entire set glowed. And it looks like a VFX shot, but it was practical. Oh, wow. It was all done practically. There was the other piece you put here, the, the sign that actually said Bill and Ted University. Yeah, the monument sign. Right. The monument sign was designed to look as though it were 20 feet high, like a foreground uh, miniature. <laughs> and so that particular day when they were shooting, I came to open the set, and then I left, and I came back. And when I saw the dailies, I realized they just took the sign on the truck and stuck it, put down, it down on the ground. So it didn't have the impact I wanted it to. But at the end of the day, I decided, you know what, Oliver Wood may not have known that I wanted it to be that way, but in any case, wherever he placed it in the shot looks fine to me. Yeah. And in other words, it's legible and you right. can read it. Right. So, so, so that, was, that was good. And right, yeah. and as you, your job as a production designer, you're here to get it you know, ready, get camera ready at least, right? And then you're, you're on to the next... Set Absolutely, or location. Uh, location scouting or going, going to the set that was just finished to make sure that it was restored properly, so that the next time I call them to use a the set, they won't say you ruined my floor, <laughs> right. you broke a window. You know, you have to be on top of that. And so, uh, I uh, uh, I was not there, and I'm there probably a day ahead of everyone to make sure it's good because I can tell you that every set. I've ever opened was in mortal fear 
that it would not be right, that it would not be good enough. It's terrifying. Every single set in 50 movies yeah. is terrifying. <laughs> And I don't know if anyone else feels that way. Maybe they have more confidence than I do. But I, I have confidence in, in, in the work, but I don't have that much confidence in me. Oh, come on. <laughs> it's terrifying. Were there any... Um... You know, and there's 150 people standing around right, and right. you made a mistake. It's really embarrassing. So I, I, I've only had that happen, I think, once in my career, and that's because the paint didn't dry and it wasn't my fault. It wasn't your fault. All right, yeah. well... Were there any uh, like visual motifs that you incorporated into any of the sets, shapes? Uh... Oh, yeah. There was a concept that came from the, the very beginning that there were going to be a, a lot of circles in circles. the movie. Okay. And w one of the uh, research items that uh, Pete Hewitt gave to me was the uh, Frank Lloyd Wright Johnson's Wax Building in Racine, Wisconsin. And if you look at, uh, at heaven and you see the reference from the, the Johnson's Wax Building, you'll see a direct connection to that. So there's a lot of circles. There's a, you can see it in uh, right down to the rivets on wow. top of the steel. There was a, Pete Hewitt was a, a major contributor to the, the look of the film. As you know, he, he is an artist. He's a sculptor, and so unlike, I don't know, Carl Reiner, who I work with, says, okay, I'm going to do the, the casting, and just give me two weeks of rehearsal with my cast, and you're on your own. And give me my editor. <laughs> and right, and was, Carl Reiner, you did summer school. Yeah, right, summer and school, it was yeah. a fabulous experience because he didn't get involved in any of my business whatsoever. He just said, you're the production designer, production design. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about uh, Vasquez Rocks. Oh yeah, it's used yes, in the yeah. film because now, not only are you at this great location, but the way it's used in the film is a reference to it being used as a location in something else. And of course, earlier in the film, Bill and Ted are watching this classic episode of Star Trek, and William Shatner running up the rocks there. Oh so yeah, was that always? I mean, was that written into the script? Oh that yeah, they're watching Star Trek and they go to Vasquez Rocks. Inside joke, <laughs> all, all, all the way. Ed Solomon and his partner. Forgive me, I can't think of his name. He uh, referenced that, and of course we had to get Paramount's clearance to use the clip. You know, Explain Vasquez Rocks, maybe again to people who, who aren't familiar with well, it. Well, first of all, they've been filming there since the turn of the century, yeah. the 20th century. And uh, apparently it was a place where banditos hung around. It was a notorious place where people shouldn't go. A gang, you know, like robbers, you know, highway robbers and thieves hung around there. I, I think that because of the fame of that, a lot of the early film directors wanted to shoot there because of its notorious history. But not only that, the shape of it is 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 as probably great as Monument Valley in, in John Ford movies. Yeah, it's wonderful. One film that I was amazed when I heard that they shot there was the uh, uh, 1931 Dracula, though they never used the actual famous rock formations they just use some of the trails for renfield's carriage is going to the castle but the actual the you know of course the castle in the background was all a matte painting but the but the pathways was up there at vasquez rocks which i thought was super cool and oh, of course yeah. that's yeah. been used in you know movies like army of darkness and blazing saddles and the flintstones movie i think did you ever use it in anything else vasquez rocks i can't think of anything else 
and the thing about it is, is that I don't know if you know this, but because we have a very clever costume designer and cinematographer, when when Bill and Ted are dead, that's all makeup in black right, and white. Right, right, right. There's no CGI there, none of that. It's all done live. And I think uh, we had, I think Kevin Yeager did a lot of the uh, uh, robot stuff. But whoever did the makeup, I, I wish I could remember, but that to me was astonishing. No, that is it. amazing. And how do you remember how, do you know how it was done photographically, though, since it was all just makeup? It was still color, but even the rocks look like they're desaturated. Oh, yeah. Oliver Wood. Yeah. And by the way, I'm sure, you know, it was shot on 35 millimeter film. Obviously, it wasn't digital 4K. And so everything that was done was in camera. And then when he went into, you know, to color correct, he probably had that in mind, but the color, Keanu and Alex drop out, and the other guys pop up. Yeah, I thought it was an amazing shot. It is I amazing, it was a stunning shot. It is. No, I was noticing it yesterday. Did you? So the shots, though, obviously the big wide shots of the rocks with the guys up top, I were stunt people, I guess, that went up there. Yes, they were. But then for the close-ups, did you build like a set, or did you use a different area of the rock wall for the close-ups of them hanging over the? hanging the good Bill and Ted's over the edge. Oh, I, I, I'm certain we must have because we built a, a lot of rock stuff yeah. on stage, including you built a lot of rock. the yeah. f floating rock. So that may have been a set piece. And, and by the way, the, uh, the entire gargoyle uh, was, was built full size. Oh, yeah. Full size. And, and I the wish... The gargoyle being the piece, the metal sort of piece that, that the rock, is, the rock it, is getting... That the devil turns the switch on and the rock starts coming closer to the, it gets pulled on the chain, right? Yes. And then they climb up it. There's that, but also as they're walking along the, the top of the gargoyle, when they fall through the floor yes. into hell. Into hell, yes. That was all full scale. And, and uh, I had a lot of uh, 35 millimeter transparencies of it, but I just donated them to the Motion Picture Academy. And... Uh, I should have scanned them beforehand, but they're safe there, and they're for any, anyone who wants to see them. They're in the Academy Library. Where did you build all the sets for Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey? We're told we were going to office at Santa Clarita Studios. It was brand new. We were one of the first major films to shoot there, in, in my memory. And uh, we uh, had... Uh, actually... Mom and Dad Save the World were filming there when we got okay. there. They were just finishing up. And uh, when we got to the stages and they started striking the sets, one of the first things we found that had nothing to do with me but for grip and electric and camera, there was no grid like at Warner Brothers or Universal or mm -hmm. the major studios. So being no grid, it meant that we had to put in the grid to hang all the lights. So that was a problem. So in, in Mom and Dad Save the World, and I can't remember what set it was for, maybe when they get to the other planet, there was a huge dome that they had built that was almost the complete size of the stage. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And so Mom and Dad Save the World were striking, and all of a sudden we walked on the stage, and they were getting ready to take the dome down, and I said, stop, 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 because, you know, even though we had the ability to do computer-generated images, and I could have used that for a ceiling, because obviously you can't see the top of the stage in, in the yeah. classroom building. 
And so what I did was I came up with the idea and I got my construction coordinator. Hey man, this can be the dome roof of, of the classroom. So we bought it from oh. them. And not only did we pay for it, but it saved them the cost of having to strike it. So they left it in place and that meant... Oh, I had no idea. That's crazy. <laughs> so so uh, whoever the production designer of Mom and Dad was, uh, thank you very much for the dome of the classroom building. And it was, you were telling me earlier, you're actually showing me this photo that's right here, that the, the stages were kind of small in terms of the ceiling height. Yes, it, it, it was a problem, but but the reason to go to Santa Clarita Studios, not only it was brand new and shiny and clean, we had all of our offices there. Every department was office there. I mean, we basically took over the whole studio. And the problem was with the height of the stages, uh, maybe it was 24 feet, I don't know. Eight, 18 feet is warehouse size, which is always a nightmare. I always avoid that. So whatever height it was, it wasn't high enough for what we wanted to do. And uh, the inspiration for the Heaven set was Stairway to Heaven, the David Niven film from the 1940s. Uh, and so I needed this to be bigger than I was able to build. So what we did was we got together with Greg McMurray and the visual effects team and, and uh, Richard Holland. We said, okay, look, here's what we want to do. Can you do this? And they said, yeah, sure, we can do that. So I built the sets as high as the live action would be, which is maybe, I don't know, 10 feet, 12 feet. And this is like the sets for the heaven All the sets. heaven sets, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and we built that, and, and all the rest were all set extensions, including the fact that when the heaven doors opened, they couldn't be CGI because they're in motion. We built a set of miniature doors that were like oh, a wow. foreground miniature and having Oliver Wood again that were open and then you cut to a lower portion below the cut line as they enter through the doors. So we didn't have to mat them into the shot. Right. When we had done some email correspondence before, I was asking you about locations for the Battle of the Bands. Oh, stuff. yeah. And I know we had, you had said there was Magic Mountain. And then, of course, you know, if you're familiar with the L.A. area, you can, you can recognize the exterior of the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. But I think you had mentioned that there was something about reshooting and having to go back to a place and finding another location. Here's, here's what happened. We shot the original Battle of the Bands at Magic Mountain because they were off-season. You know, at that time, I don't know if it's open year-round or not, but uh, they had just recently uh, covered it in a dome because that was an open stage at one time. I think I saw the Pointer Sisters there. And so uh, they covered it up, and then it was decided at the end of the film that it was so good that we were going to do something different with the Battle of the Bands. And... Uh, uh, so we called Magic Mountain and they said, yeah, well, you're out of luck because we're open now and <laughs> we have n no room for you. You can't have it. So then the location guy was sent out to find a place and we ended up uh, at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium interior. And what I had to do was I had to build the Magic Mountain interior oh, wow. inside the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. To dead match so they could intercut if they wanted to so it was luckily it was a black set 
you know, it was all black. It wasn't like an ornate proscenium, you know, like at the Los Angeles Theater right. or anything like that. There are a couple of scenes outside the auditorium. So you ended up with the Santa Monica Civic, but do you know what was to happen with those exterior shots if you just went back to Magic Mountain? Because the, the exterior of the Santa Monica Civic is actually pretty visually interesting. So I'm wondering if you think you would have gone there anyway to do those exterior shots. I, I can't remember, but all I can remember is that the interior had to be an exact replica yeah. of Magic Mountain. And, and you know what? I think it's even in the script and the dialogue here at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium now that I'm Well, I think it's the, it's the San Dimas Civic Auditorium. Oh, it is. Okay. You, there's okay. actually, I guess you guys put a sign out there because there actually is a sign out front of the auditorium that says San Dimas Civic. So there you go. There you go. There you yeah. Go. Um, and also, too, uh, a note is that the uh, Historical Heritage Society there is trying to save it because the city wants to to demolish it. The Civic Auditorium. Yeah. Wow. Because they think it's old, but it's a, a mid-century beauty. Yeah, it's a beautiful building. And and we're saying, why you want to do that? You're destroying history. It's yeah. like enough, uh, an, enough redevelopment, enough, you know. Yeah. Do you recall where the Circle K was? I don't. Yeah, that's the one place. Uh, you I know can't, what I, th I, I think it might out. be. I have I have some idea that it might be near Valencia. That's what I thought. Because the studio was nearby. Yeah. And because we were night shooting, it's always good when you're night shooting to stay as close to the studio as possible to go back and get equipment, yeah. extra equipment. I thought it could be up there, so I'm still looking for it. But uh, I'm still. But I did just find, as I told you, I did just find the Builders Emporium location where they go to get all the, the materials to buy the good Bill and Ted robots. And I was quite excited. That's over in Northridge. But I'm not going to say exactly where it is because... I'm gonna I'm gonna include that on an upcoming tour. Oh, good. Um, yeah. So I gotta I gotta put that in there. But I was super excited when I found it. Now the the uh, the thing about that is uh, you, you're probably aware of it. Like I don't know if everyone is, but that's where Pete Hewitt's uh, oh, cameo, cameo is. That's yeah. right. The smoker. He's, He's smoking a, smoker. a cigarette in Death Watch. Death. See you real soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's. <laughs> and it, it, by the way, it, as a side note, nothing to do with me. Billy Sadler auditioned. With uh, uh, the uh, European accent, Eastern European. Oh, really? Yeah. He he he, he, he brought that in. I love that character so he's, much. It's uh, like so he's he's so endearing. So I hope if they ever do this third movie uh, that they've been talking about for a long time, that Death would would be back. And that that leads me to this. I mean, do you think a Bill and Ted movie today, you know, would catch on with audiences or or is it, you know, more nostalgia? Cuz there's, you know, of course, I think especially this last decade, there's been a lot of nostalgia. Things going back to the 80s, bringing those things back. Do you think a, a third Bill and Ted movie would, you know, oh, yeah. audiences would dig it today? Absolutely. I mean, it's even happening in television with Murphy Brown and the uh, Roseanne right. show and, and uh, One Day at a Time. Everyone is nostalgic because these times are perilous. We're not living in happy times in America, unfortunately, with all the dissension and separation. So I think that uh, like Super Mario Brothers, which is like a, a terrible movie from a critical viewpoint, there's so many people that love that movie. Yeah, there are. Do you prefer working on location or on a stage or does the film just dictate what you what you're going to do a lot of it depends on the director but i will say this 
I will accept a great location over a cheap set any day. If I don't have enough money and resources and talent to make a great set, I'll say, okay, you know what? Uh, I yield. I'll, I'll take the location. And, and that happened a lot on Demolition Man. You know, I, I built millions of dollars worth of sets. But also, too, the, the Taco Bell was a location uh, in, in an old Hughes facility. And uh, uh, lots of other locations. And on, on Blade Runner, you know, the, 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 the ice room with, hand, with the, the eyes. That was a location. How could you not want to shoot at Union Station? So right. all all those locations. Uh, as a matter of fact, in Bryant's office, the set was built within the location. That happens a lot too. I I like to take a great location, and uh, and build sets into it hmm. to have the advantage of the architecture of that and match it. And to this day, the set from Blade Runner is still in Union Station because they bought it from us. Was there anything in Bill and Ted that you built? into a location or was it pretty separate between sets and locations uh, let me think uh it seems like it's pretty it's pretty separate the police station was interior exterior the same the motel was mixed uh the uh, the apartment you mean the yeah. apartment yeah you right by the way i i named it uh what did i name it i named it the freeway the freeway arms or some crazy idea like that because it would be noisy and oh. no one would want to live the there. The freeway arms, I got you. <laughs> the, when you see it again, you'll know yeah. The, the, yeah. The freeway something. That was a joke. You did say earlier in the episode that there was nothing you were really unhappy with in the film, but station. I, I wasn't unhappy with my work. I, I thought <laughs> that Neil Maclis and Scott Krupp gave me everything I wanted. They, they never... They never said you can't have it, uh, at least in, in, in my memory. You know, right. it's, it's a while ago. <laughs> so the thing of it was is I don't know if Kevin Yeager did the stations. I know he did the robots. I don't know where the idea came from. But as soon as the station showed up on the screen, <laughs> that was the end of the movie for me because <laughs> I never got it. I thought they looked like phlegm. Uh, maybe that was the intention. I don't know what Ed had in his mind, but I never got it. And, and all of heaven, which was so beautiful. And, and the other thing, too, about heaven, I will say that Pete and I and Oliver Wood disagreed on, is uh, he didn't want any atmosphere, uh, fog in heaven. And I don't know why to this day, if there was a way for me to take those scenes and, and do another layer in a, a workstation and add it, and one of the things that bothered me about it was I had built the sets like two inches off the ground, every set, which is time-consuming and a lot of money to get it to lift up. And I had neon tubing, uh, violet neon tubing, around the entire perimeter of the heaven set. And you might see it a little bit, but if we had just a little bit of atmosphere, not much, and Pete would have none of it. And so Oliver and I had to just take that on the chin. But that's, that's about it. I mean, you know, it's, it's not much to complain about. It's Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. I mean, it's a bankable movie. Right. They have to bring Billy Sadler back, who, who I have an affection for because we're both from the same hometown. Oh, okay. okay. 
and, and he's great in everything. And he has a cameo at the end of the film when they're showing it around the world, right? He's he, in the the, he, the the kitchen. Yes, and I, and I, and I have to say about all those scenes, I was off the picture by then. I was gone when they did those added scenes. I was on to another film, and uh, my uh, longtime decorator uh, Peg Cummings. Uh, who was the original decorator on Blade Runner. She was a woman in red, a lot of pictures together. She was the one that did all those pickup shots around the world. And that's why they're so amazing, because it was a, a great decorator who was able to do that. Well, we have to wrap up because they're going to open the garden soon. I'm sure I've talked well, enough. No, no, it's good. I, I want to thank you so much for coming out today. And if you are listening at home or in your car or wherever, if you live in L.A. or if you're visiting the area, come and see the exterior of Bill and Ted University by coming to the Japanese Garden. It's located in Woodley Park at 6100 Woodley Ave. And uh, all the hours and visitor info are on the website at thejapanesegarden.com. You can also check out Shout Factory's Bill and Ted's Excellent Collection Blu-ray set, which features both movies, some interviews with David on those special features. The first film was actually just put out in May in a limited edition steelbook. And the second film is coming out in November in a limited edition steelbook, also from Shout Factory. So check those out. Thanks again to my guest, David L. Snyder. You can follow him on Facebook at David L. Snyder Motion Picture Design and on Twitter and Instagram at, at Buffalo15NY. Uh, you can also check out his website, which I totally recommend going to, davidsnyderfilms.com. There you can access David's great collection of behind-the-scenes photos from films he's worked on, including Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And be sure to follow us on Facebook at On Location with Jared Cowan, on Twitter at On Location PC, and on Instagram at On Location Podcast. And more info can be found about my San Fernando Valley and Pasadena film tours at myvalleypass.com. Thank you all for tuning in and joining us on location. Thanks again, David. Oh, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.